letter to read you from uh, Pastor John. Uh, Dear church family, I'm sorry I am not able to be with you today. While the past couple of Sabbaths, Lisa and I have been with some of you on a marriage retreat or in Death Valley, we have also missed worshiping in Calamesa with our entire church family. But unfortunately, life has thrown us a little curve. While Lisa was driving home from Escondido on Thursday evening, she experienced some sudden onset of symptoms that were of concern. This led to her being hospitalized so she could be placed under observation and a series of tests could be run to rule out various possible medical conditions. So far, the tests are coming back with favorable results. We are hoping she will be discharged sometime on Sabbath. We have been so blessed by your love and support for our our family in the short time we have been here. We cherish your prayers and look forward to worshiping with you next Sabbath. God is good, and all the time at his feet, John. Um, When you find this out on Friday afternoon, uh, this is, uh, you know, a little bit of a challenge. Thankfully, uh, God has a plan. And um, we uh, turned to our, our dear friend, Kathy McMillan, who said, I know just the person to step in. And um, so it's my privilege this morning to uh, welcome to our, our church uh, uh, Jim Greek. Uh, Jim is a, a chaplain at uh, Lowell University and an absolute joy to work with, uh, as any of you who work with him, as I do, can attest. Uh, he's been a pastor and a conference president and when Kathy called him, he was on his way out of town for the weekend and uh, felt the spirit uh, call that uh, this is what he ought to do and turned around and came back. So I'd like you to uh, join me in welcoming uh, Jim Greek. Thank you, Jim. Good morning. I'd like to be able to say I've been looking forward to this all week. <laughs> but it's as much a surprise to me as it is to you. But I'm just so glad to, good to be here with you. <clears throat> you know, we're living in some very, very exciting days, aren't we? I read a report uh, not too long ago from some futurists. I'm not talking about astrologers, but people who look into our society and the trends and try to map out what, where we're going and all of that. But one thing that was kind of quite interesting in their, their report is that we're living today in a time of paradox, that we're surrounded with the good things and the bad things, and they're happening all at once. Every time we start to relax and feel comfortable about the way life is going, something comes in from the side. And I jotted down just a few of these that, that are quite interesting. If you could look at this as, as the good and the bad and the pluses and the minuses. Do you realize that we're living in a day and age right now, some of you who work at the hospital in different places, I'm sure you're aware of this. With our technology, for example, we have the capability of writing the 27 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica on the head of a pen. That's where our technology is. But with all that technology, we can't stop, apparently stop the corruption in our society that over the past 24 months has caused hundreds of thousands of families to lose their homes. Paradox. We're living in a time of health consciousness. There seems to be more health consciousness than ever before. It's not just the Adventists pressing this. Everyone seems to be pressing it. And when this one report was kind of interesting, it says, you know, we reached the time where the average person on the street can actually tell the difference between LDL and HDL in blood tests. But at the same time that we're having all these breakthroughs and renewed emphasis, we can't seem to figure out how to stop our teenagers in the United States from taking their own lives. 
paradox. We're living in a time where we have the technology to send spacecraft across our solar system, and some of our scientists feel they found on one of the moons of Jupiter a, a, a satellite, the, the moon there, that might just have a warm water ocean under that crust of ice. And they're saying out of this whole solar system, this may be the place that we find life outside of our planet. So millions and millions and millions of dollars is being poured into this, not just to get there, but to figure out a way of drilling through that ice to get to that ocean. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? However, at the same moment, hundreds and some, some have felt thousands of species of plants and animals on our planet are going extinct each year because of the pollution we're pouring into the air and into our waters. Pluses. We're living in a time of smart cars where our cars can talk to us and tell us how to get where we want to go in any voice we can choose. And I've driven in some of these cars, and I have to admit, some of their voices are just arrogant, I think. We should correct that. Smart cars, while at the same time, lifestyles of people seem to be growing faster. I mean, isn't that why we had computers to slow things down, you know? Now we have computers and technology that's created greater and greater speed to the point that even though we can move faster and faster, we seem to have lost our destination. So people are walking around with meaninglessness in life. Exciting times, scary times. But I tell you, friends, as I look over this and, and work at the hospital and see people in pain, and, and I'm sure you see this world as it really is, what, I, what would be the most exciting to me is to know and to think that wouldn't it be great if we were living in the age when God's going to pour out his spirit in the form of a loud cry and the louder rain to finish up this work so we can go home. Are you ready to go home? Oh, I am. So this morning in our time remaining, I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, there's so many things in life that keep us busy and keep us challenged. But Lord, help us never to just step back and see the big picture of things that we have a God and the Son and the Holy Spirit and angels that want to bring us into a face-to-face relationship with them. We're all tired of trotting under this cloud down here, but we know we have a work to do and we need your help, and that's why you sent the Holy Spirit. So be with us now and attend us during this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Last Thursday night, I uh, attended its restaurant over in Alessandro, over here ways. And I was sitting there, well, actually, let me back up. I've eaten there before, and one time I made the mistake of going into the restaurant with my chaplain badge showing. So now every time I go back, it's how's the chaplain doing and what's happening at the hospital. So they kind of knew me. And so I was sitting at, the ho- at this restaurant there, and um, Lee Aveling, one of the people that works over the hospital with me, matter of fact, he's part of your congregation, he sent me this message on my iPhone. And those, those are quite amazing things. And the message was a letter that was sent out to the community to several people. And it was sobering, and I'm not going to read the name of who sent it, but it's somebody well-known in the community. And he was kind of putting two and two together and felt the burden to share this with some of his friends, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he says this, I have been monitoring the earthquake activity, and things are looking bad on the horizon. If things continue, we may be faced with a catastrophic quake soon. Then he goes into listing all the statistics over the past few months. And his conclusion is we're following the same pattern as Chile and Haiti. And in his mind, he's saying he wouldn't be off-center to realize that we may be hit with a big one too. So the rest of his letter goes into telling his friends how to get ready and how to prepare. So I'm sitting there reading this, and I'm just kind of, it was kind of a serious note, you know, and I was thinking, and the waitress comes up. She said, what are you reading? 
She said, you look so intense. So I shared with her a few things. And she plopped down in the chair, and another waitress came over. She says, no, we've been worrying about this. And I said, what are you talking about? She says, Chaplain, what in the world's going on? He says, look over the past two years. And she started listing, I mean, Iran, the economy, housing. And she said, we reached the point. She says, and it was funny because they were talking amongst themselves, we're not rocket scientists, but it's not hard to see that our nation is being subsidized by other world powers and what's going to happen when they finally buy us all out. And they went on and on and on, and they were saying, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? This sermon this morning is not some type of end-time sermon with charts, I don't know exactly where we are. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's next week or next month. I'm not going to do that. This could be what we're going through is just another blip on the radar. But it does remind me of the fact that we're not going to be here forever. And if I understand the scriptures and the counsel given to our church, the closer we get to Christ's return, the more intense times are going to get. And I like one little phrase, and I didn't find it, and I didn't, but I can just state it out of my head, that the time would come when, when government and issues are going to become so complicated that world leaders won't know what to do. Boy, is that happening today? But what, what, what kind of brings me some hope is I look at this whole picture that apparently we have a promise we can hang on to. That during this time, during the days when things get so intense, that God promises the Holy Spirit's going to kick in in a more powerful way. And the more intense the bad times get, the more powerful the Holy Spirit's ministry is going to get. And I, frankly, friends, I'm ready for that. We haven't, you know, when I first joined this church... I heard a lot more about the early rain and the latter rain. And, and, if, and if I could share that with you just briefly, you know, the early rain is simply this. Back in those days, the farmers would plant their seed. The early rain would come and germinate the seed, and it would start growing into a plant, and it would continue to grow. But as it approached the harvest season, the latter rain would fall and ripen the fruit, and then the harvest would come. And it's to that event that I think we're rapidly moving to. But even in those early days in the church, I noticed there were some misconceptions about this. I've had people, you know, back in those days, and even some today, I can't wait for the latter rain to come so it can kind of make us different than we are now, as if it's, God's going to somehow spray us, you know, with the latter rain. I, I, I went to Andrews University, and um, I had to work part of my way through. And I used to paint barns. Have you ever been to Michigan up there? They have some big barns. And we learned the hard way. You can be at the tip top of the ladder with your paint bucket and a brush, and the wind starts blowing, and the ladder starts doing this across the wall, and you're like a cat, you know, holding on. And I learned some tricks of the trade that when you get up there, you bring a hammer and a nail, and you, you nail the, you know, you nail the ladder to the wall so you won't go anywhere. Well, we were on this one call, and this lady didn't want her barn painted, but wanted a garage painted, and she wanted it kind of a green color. And so... She was telling her her relatives were coming. She wanted things looking nice, and she had a nice lawn. But in the center of the lawn, there was a big brown spot, dead grass, and she was so concerned about this. Well, I was working with this partner who was just so mischievous to start with, and I'm finding in life I attract mischievous friends, and it's it's, just good. But we were up there. I was on one side of the, the garage. He was on the other, and we were using our spray guns, and all of a sudden, it grew quiet, you know, on the other side, and I, I hollered over to him, and I didn't hear anything, and and then finally I heard the ladder moving on his side, and, and then I hear these words, Yo, Jim, I fixed the lady's problem. And I thought, oh, I vey, what did he do? And I said, what did you do? And he went, fix the lady's problem. And I got down the ladder, you know, and I went around there. And there in the middle of the lawn where there used to be this brown spot, it was a beautiful green. He had, <clears throat> he had sprayed the brown spot green. And I have to admit, it was a good job. You could hardly tell, you know, the margins. Um, and fortunately for us, the lady had a real sense of humor, and she said, it looks good, looks good. Grass, grass was never supposed to turn green by being sprayed green. 
It was supposed to turn green by drinking in the sunshine and the nutrients and the, and the water and kind of turns green from within. And I think it's that way with the Holy Spirit too. God's not going to spray us with the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the heart. If you will, turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. We won't look up all these passages, but I wanted to look up this one. It's kind of a beautiful summation here. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says this, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, and so is every one that is born of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in our lives. I'm looking for those last magnanimous, magnanimous moments of, of the end time, but right now, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives at this very, very moment. And so in this sermon, in the brief time we have left, I want to look at three aspects of what the Holy Spirit is doing. The first is in John chapter 15. We're going to stay in John this morning. I'm just going to read this. John chapter 15 and verse 26. It reads, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father... He shall do what? He shall testify of me. Probably one of the most important works of the Holy Spirit is to testify to us of Jesus. And as I look at that practically, I think practically in life too, if I understand it right, Jesus, the Holy Spirit wants to take everything Jesus is, his love, his patience, his hope, his courage, his wisdom, and then the Spirit wants to take everything we are and mix it all up together. And I found this principle, I know you know it too, everything Jesus touches, he heals. And the Holy Spirit wants to come to the place where Jesus is the most important person in our lives. You know, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of beautiful paintings at Loma Linda, and we see them often. But I think the most beautiful painting is what the Spirit is trying to do, to paint that picture of Christ for each one of us so that Jesus does become the most important person. I love when the disciples were here years ago, and somebody stopped them, you know, or actually Jesus made the comment, will you go away also? And you remember what they said? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. That, that, that event was happening. Jesus was assuming his role in their, world, their life. Philippians 2.5 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was yours in Christ Jesus. There's a change in our lives when the Spirit does His work. He brings us close to Jesus and we take on His characteristics. We change. Compassion takes the place of impatience. Courage takes the place of weakness. Love takes the place of indifference. I think too, and to me it's a humbling thought, that sometimes the only Jesus some people may see is the Jesus in your life the life you live, they recognize something is different about you. But it doesn't come without his work. You know, I, I've got a confession to make to you, and um, this isn't Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's something similar. I'm a horn blower on the freeway. Have you, ever, have you ever had somebody cut you off? And you don't have to raise your hands. 
But somebody cut me off last week, and I just, I just went right to the horn, and I had to kind of hold myself back. And see, the problem is I come from a whole line of horn blowers. My father was a horn blower. My, my grandfather was a horn blower. My great-grandfather had Model T's in his days, but I guess they had horns too. And, and it's something, I guess I'm a recovering horn blower. And at times I wonder, where did that come from? And, and I thought back, and I know exactly where it came from. I, I had a wonderful dad. He, he died a few years ago, and I buried him. He used to take us camping and fishing and all kinds of stuff. And, and we were with him so much of, of his life. We were with him all the time, especially when we were in the car driving down the road when somebody cut him off. And, and I watched my dad honk his horn at people. And, and that became part of my life. And I've noticed in life, and maybe you do too, that when you face new challenges in life, do you catch yourself responding to them the way your parents did? You know? Because we, we, they're, they're part of us. But some things, fortunately, my dad left a good, good examples, but with this, I had to struggle a little bit. As I look at that, I, I have to say, I believe what the Holy Spirit really wants to do in each of us, particularly me with this, is to bring me so close to Jesus in experience that when I go through life, when I react to different situations, that by impulse I'll react to them the way Jesus would have reacted. That people will see Jesus in me. It's not a subtle work system. It's just the fact that we think of the latter rain and the work we have to do. People are looking for others to trust and people who have hope. And so I think the Holy Spirit has a very, very important job to testify of Jesus. He wants to paint a picture of Jesus in our lives so when people look at us, they see him. Number two, I think what the Holy Spirit wants to do is turn this book into a supernatural event. Now, we know your scriptures, you know, you think back that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We know where this book came from. But there's a lot of people today, scholars and different ones, who read this book as some type of history book for facts. They don't particularly believe in God or the Spirit, but they're looking at this just as Bible history. I think in God's plan, he has something much more in mind than that. I've had the chance in my life to go over to the Holy Land and Sea of Galilee, and those things are pretty neat. But I've met people who have said, boy, if I could just get over there where Jesus walked, then I can somehow you know, catch the spiritual experience. You know, friends, I don't think you have to do that. If I understand it right, when we open up this book, it becomes a supernatural book. It's not just words on a page or stories. There's a supernatural power in, in the form of the Holy Spirit that desires to make this book live in our lives. When I think of Bible study, we were talking about this the other day in Chaplin's department, you know, of, of our personal walk with God and our personal Bible study, how easy it is sometimes just to kind of read, scan a chapter, and be able to say to ourselves, we've done our Bible study for the day. But as I look at how we were counseled, it was simply this, to take a passage of Scripture and think about it and contemplate what does it mean and give the Holy Spirit a time to apply the meaning of the scripture to our lives so that we become changed. This is a conduit for God's spirit into our world. He wants to use this book to make a difference. I love bees, B-E-E-S. I grew up next to a guy who had beehives. Same routine, he'd put his mask and net on, go out to his bees. I'd get interested as a little kid, go over there. He'd tell me a few things until the bees attacked me and ran me off back home. But, but I, I love bees. But, you know, there's some powerful lessons in a beehive. Who does most of the work in the beehive? Who, I heard several worker bees, pretty much. You know who the worker bees are? The females. 
the, yeah, I know, I know. The females keep that hive hunting, uh, running. And, and the thing is, those beehives, or those, those honeybees, uh, particularly the worker bees, live about six weeks. And their main job is to go out and get bee pollen, bring it back, and take care of the larvae, do the, do the main, get rid of the garbage, all that stuff. They work and work and work. They live about six weeks. And when they die, we're told they usually die in flight, carrying a load of pollen. They don't reach old age. They just kind of wear out. And they come from the larvae. But somewhere along the line, the group will choose a specific larvae, same larvae that the regular worker bees came from, and they will feed it and take care of it, and it is transformed into a, a queen bee. Now, the queen bee is over one and a half times the size of the worker bee. Different. The queen bee has different internal organs. It's almost like it's a different creature, and it has those organs to lay millions and millions of eggs over her lifetime. And the lifespan of a queen bee isn't six weeks. They've been known to live one and a half to two years. Tremendous lifetime, lifespan. But the ironic thing, the thing that caught my eye, I mean, these two worker bees and queen, they came out of the exact same larvae. But in the research, and I actually, this is fresh off the press from the Internet this morning. The, the, main, the only difference as far as creation, the only difference between the queen bee and the worker bee is what they ate. <laughs> Ready for this? The powerful milky substance that turns an ordinary bee into a queen bee is made of bee pollen, honey, mixed with a chemical secreted from the gland of a nursing bee. That chemical is kind of interesting. It comes out of the brain case of the bee. And when they feed that larvae this combination, it's transformed into a different creature. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that we have royal jelly here that God has sent to us. And as I look at this, I realize that if we understand, if we take the word as take the Bible as word and let the Holy Spirit do its work, when we feast on this, changes occur in our own lives. You know, we have meaning where we didn't have meaning before. Fortunately, we don't grow one and a half times the size as we are, because I'm trying to lose a few pounds, but the influence we have is broadened out, you know. And even the internal organs, you know, they have, as queen has internal organs that are different for a different purpose. We come away with a different purpose in life too, and new meaning. And it's all because of what we ate. And I like this part. The difference in lifespan between them was six weeks and a year and a half. With us, it's 70 years if we're lucky, and eternity if we feed on royal jelly. Because he tells us when we eat this, it will never die. We'll never die. And it's all because of what we ate. I know a couple that live back east that uh, had a story that uh, I still remember to this day. He was in a meeting in Carolina. She was down south and was seven months pregnant. And he received this phone call in the middle of the meeting. It was a police officer from back home. And it says, your wife's been in a bad automobile accident. You need to get home. He didn't have any, any details. He checked the flights, couldn't get back, so he, the best thing was to get in his car and just take off as fast as he could. And on the trip home, he called the hospital several times, and they gave him the same message over and over again. We cannot give you any information over the phone. Now, I don't know what you would do with that, but they had her back, and they were testing her. Fortunately, she was okay. Later, we found out she was okay, except she had a brain concussion. And every three or four minutes, she would totally blank out of what happened in her situation. And then she would get extremely anxious and realize she was pregnant and while I'm in the hospital, that kind of thing. Some thinking nurse saw this situation and did this. Took a piece of paper and said, your name is Susan. 
you've been in a bad automobile accident, your baby is okay, your husband is on his way. He pressed that note, she pressed that note into this woman's hands, and every few minutes when her mind went blank, she'd feel that paper and look at it. My name is Susan, I've been in an automobile, my baby's okay, and she would just relax. This went on time after time after time. And finally, when her husband came, he tried to get the piece of paper out of her hand, and she says, no, I've got to hold on to this piece of paper. I tell you, friends, this is our piece of paper. We can get so busy and challenged and dealing with the pain of life, but even for me as a chaplain, I have to stay close to this to remember while we're here. You know, when I look at this Bible, and I think if I could summarize it, what he's trying to tell us is that you are a child of God. You have been in a terrible sin accident you are still a child of God, and I'm coming to get you. And when we have that, for me, it helps us to keep our feet on the ground. So point number two, he turns this book into something supernatural. And the last point, the Holy Spirit is our guide, is our guide. God has sent him to us to work with us to get us to heaven to help us in those little decisions we make every day, to keep us on the path. You know, this idea of the Holy Spirit being a convicting power is not just to point out our faults. He wants to get us where God wants us to go. And sometimes when that conviction strikes us, we have to realize something is wrong and to hear his voice, to listen to his voice. You know, sometimes we think as we go through life we're going all alone, but we're really not. Behind the scenes, beyond our vision, and like, I like the words of that song about he sings over us even though we can't see him. These aren't the exact words, but it's just, it's just so true of the Holy Spirit. There is so much of heaven trying to get us to heaven, so much of heaven, the powers in heaven. I like the uh, story in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 and 17. I'm just going to state this. Do you remember the story when Elisha was out in the desert with a servant? And they woke up one morning, and actually his servant woke up first. He went out there, and lo and behold, there were all the bad guys. The armies were surrounding them. And the servant went back to Elisha and said, Master, what shall we do? And I wish I could have seen this, but the way it's written, it gave me the impression Elisha was very calm about it. Oh, Lord, open his eyes. <laughs> you know. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and you know what he saw? He saw the armies of the living God surrounding the bad guys. Do you think that happens today? I think it does. I like that verse. When I first joined the church, I would see this verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I spent too much of my first experience as a Christian resisting the devil, and I realized after a while the devil's really not afraid of me, <laughs> you know. But the proper understanding of that is that when we face temptations and the Spirit comes to convict us and empower us, when we choose, when we choose to do what's right, yeah, the devil may be there, but he's looking at me and he's not afraid of me. He's looking over my shoulder. You know what he's seeing? He's seen the armies of the living God ready to back up my decision. This fight is a spiritual fight, and the Holy Spirit is right in the middle of it and is our advocate for us. Several years back, I had a chance to go to Switzerland. Uh, my mom is Swiss, and, um, and it was with an evangelistic team. For, for Andrews, you had to go to one evangelistic team and get graded, so this was my, I got to go over to England, actually is where I attended, we finished the meeting, and I, my tra plane flight back was two weeks later. I bought a Eurorail pass. That's where you can, you know, ride the train anywhere you want for free for two weeks. And being your broke as can be, what I did, I planned my trip so I would see a place during the day and sleep on the train at night and get off and see the next place. And so I was zigzagging all across Europe, you know, trying to, to get it right. 
Well, I have relatives in Basel, Switzerland, and I didn't know them. My sister had some contact, and she sent a note to them that, that I'm on the way, and, but she says, I'm not sure if it's a good address, bad address. I don't know if they got it. And so before I left, I wanted to go to Basel, Switzerland. Well, I get on this Euro, this train, and in comes this guy, a young man about, I was younger back then, in the early 20s, and he plopped down in front of me, and, and he looked, this I'm, I'm betraying, he looked just like Spock on Star Trek. Not that I ever saw Star Trek or anything, but <laughs> I think there's some Trekkies out there. All right. But he just sat there, and he spoke just German. He was Swiss, but he didn't speak English. It's a very broken language. And so we, we had a, a time trying to communicate it all, and, and I did get something from him. He pointed at my belt, which was very thick, and he said he could tell I was American because Americans wear those tacky, thick belts, you know. And so we, we did this number, and we finally on a map pointed out where each of us were going, and we came to his stop that was just before mine, and he could tell. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't know where I was going. And so we came to his stop, and he just sat there. And I tapped him on the foot and pointed out to, his, to the stop, and he went like this. And so door shut, the train kept on going. We got off at my stop, and he took me by the arm and led me outside the, the train, and he sat me down in this little cafe and went in and bought me a glass of milk. And I don't know where that milk came from. I think it was goat's milk or something, but it was, it was, I still remember the taste to this day. And he, and he took my little address to my family, which is the only address I had, and he, he just went like this, you know, which meant stay, I took it. And he hopped in a cab and left. Now I was sitting there over an hour later. I think, this guy's left with my address. I don't know where I'm going now, you know. And, and it's starting to get panicky myself. And all of a sudden, this black cab pulls up. And the door opens, and there he is. And he's doing this, this, this. So I get inside with him, and he and the, and the driver just talk, talk, talk in German, you know, and, and he's getting all excited. And about 20 minutes later, we end up in some obscure village somewhere outside of, outside of Basel. He, we get out of the car, and he takes me by the arm, and he's looking and looking and looking. And finally, his, his eyes land on one door, one house. And he comes, and he knocks on the door. And this lady answers the door, and this little girl, about maybe seven or eight, and he's just talking to him very fast. And the little girl's looking around him and looking at me. And finally, she said... Jimmy from America? <laughs> they got the note from my sister. And they came around him, and the little girl held my leg, and the lady came over, you know, long-lost relative. Now, I have to tell you, I had not had a bath in three to four days. <laughs> I hadn't shaved my clothes. I looked horrible, but it didn't stop them. And I felt, oh, family, family. And I, as I was going through this, I thought to turn around and look at my friend. And he was backing off down the sidewalk. And in his broken English was saying, safe now, safe now. Friends, one day soon, all this is going to be over. And the dust will have settled. And hopefully we're all going to find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And I think if we look back, we're going to see the Holy Spirit going, safe now, safe now. You know, each of us are carrying heavy loads. Some are worried about finances probably, maybe house foreclosures, maybe illness that nobody else knows about. Kids, teenagers, we're all, you know, we're praying and thinking, young people trying to find jobs today, we have all this. I just want to say this, that the work of the Holy Spirit during our journey is to show, he's trying to show us how to keep our hand in his hand through it all no matter how tough it gets, to keep our hand in his hand. That's the safest place for us to be. And if we do that, I firmly believe that one day each of us will hear those words too. Safe now.
safe now. May God be with you. Dear Heavenly Father, it may be on our way home today, or it may be at night when we're sitting in our favorite chair with the house quiet. But Lord, whenever we feel that soft breeze of the Spirit surround us with your love, may we look up to heaven and say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.